Last week we looked at the missing of the Great War, those who had no known grave. And in our latest trench chat, we're joined by historian John Broom, who has a book on this subject coming out in October. Welcome to another trench chat on the old front line. I'm really pleased this week to be joined by John Broom, a Sheffield based military historian and writer who's got a book coming out on the missing of the Great War. Uh, John, uh, can you tell us a bit about how you got interested in the First World War and, and where your research for this book began? Well, my interest in this particular area, Paul, started ooh, probably seven years ago on a, on a trip down to Dorset. And um, the wife and I drew up outside a church, as we frequently do, to look at the war memorial. And on that war memorial uh, were listed 10 names. And I noted that three of them had the same surname. So I did a little bit of internet research and found they were brothers. And another one of the names listed on there was um, a brother-in-law. So after further um, digging around, I found out that um, two of those brothers had been lost during the Great War and their bodies never recovered. Um, I managed to find a book that had been published in 1920, a book of remembrance about the whole family, a family uh, um, with the surname Pope. Um, the father, the patriarch of the family, was a, um, a major brewer in Dorchester. He was a justice of the peace and owned various large tracts of land around the town. And he'd commissioned uh, one of his own uh, sons-in-law, a, a vicar, to write a, a book of remembrance and uh, a book of um, admiration for all the contributions that his ten sons, three daughters and three sons-in-law had made to the Great War. Uh, and I managed to track down a descendant of Alfred Pope who had in his possession um, a vast archive of letters that um, Alfred had written and his wife Elizabeth had written trying to find out the whereabouts of their son, Lieutenant Percy Paris Pope, who'd been lost at the Battle of Luce. Um, dozens of letters sent to um, relatives of other men who'd been lost that day, men who'd been taken prisoner of war. Um, and men who'd been invalided back to the UK injured. So that uh, sort of started a fascination with the, the anguish that families put themselves through, not knowing the fate of their sons, their husbands, their loved ones. Um, so I was fortunate enough then to get a, a commission from Pen and Sword Publishers uh, to write a book about the missing of the First World War. And the book that you mentioned, which is coming out at the end of next month, um, really focuses on eight particular families whose um, the, the remains of their, their sons and husbands were, well, were never found for a hundred years and who had to undergo the torment and the lack of closure that that would bring. And the First World War, in many respects, was, was unique like that, wasn't it? Because so many men just completely disappeared, often with no witnesses as to their fate. Um, yes, that's right. I mean, the, the Red Cross and Order of St. John um, put in much work going around sort of military hospitals in the UK, um, in, in the Near East and on, on near the Western Front, um, interviewing sort of wounded men who might have had memories of you know, the, where, where the missing chap, you know, his final moments, what might have happened to him. Um, but that again caused, caused issues because um, there's some examples in, in the Australian Red Cross where the information sent to the families was considered too graphic. 
and one particular mother um, complained to the to the Australian government about the, the wording of the information she'd been sent. So the, the volunteers trying to find this information had to tread a very careful line between assuring the family that absolutely their loved one was dead and that you know they could then move on to the next stage of grieving without saying yes i was standing next to him as his head was blown to bits and parts of his brain covered my uniform yeah. so it was yeah an experience that around half half of those who lost lost relatives in the great war had to go through and um, you know still to this day around half the those who were killed in the British and Commonwealth armies in the war um, have unknown graves. And I suppose there was this, they were torn between wanting to know what had happened and not wanting to know what had happened down to that fine detail, like you say. In, indeed, and, and, and one um, sort of pattern that emerged from the, from the um, stories I researched was the better connected the family, um, the more anguish they put themselves through. For example, one of the um, characters in the book is Lieutenant John Butt, um, uh, an army doctor. He just qualified as a doctor and um, was commissioned in the Army Medical Royal Army Medical Corps, as his father had been. His father had sort of stood down in the previous decade, having reached the, lang- uh, the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. So, Lieutenant Butt, who went missing um, early on in the war in October of 1914, um, his father and mother were able to, well, they knew Alfred Keogh, the Director General of Medical Services, personally. So they wrote to him for his assistance. They wrote to the the, the Spanish, uh, the King of Spain to see if the Spanish ambassador in, in Germany could uh, follow up any leads, uh, as well as, you know, the, the normal tranche of, of ex-comrades of, of their son. And this search went on for nearly two years before absolute proof convinced um, Lieutenant Butt's mother that, that he was dead. She, she went through, through torment and the, one of the really tragic things is um, I think it broke her health. She, she died sh- shortly before the war ended in 1918 so she never lived to see, once a better word, the, you know, the successful outcome of her son's sacrifice. No, that's right. And many of these families, they, they did hope beyond hope, didn't they? They, they hope was, was such an important thing to them it was and uh, you know that there is w- w- one of the letters that one of the family put at that very phrase i'm hoping against hope that that some news may, may be found um in, in the case of, of the popes again a very well connected family with, with alfred pope being a justice of the peace again they wrote to the um the king of spain um they were they also formed it seems to me um, what we might call solid solidarity networks it, it, because there were a number of families with young men from the same same battalion who got missing the same day in, the, in similar circumstances and you know that they, they they tried to comfort each other and you know it was a horrible situation knowing that if, if one person had been seen to be taken by the germans you'd want it to be your son but all you know having great sympathy with the, the other families who that might be. Um, sometimes families got unsolicited letters. Uh, another character in the book is um, a man called Ernest Blackburn, who was um, in the King's Royal Rifle Corps. He was a, a school teacher. He'd risen his way up to the pupil teacher system in the early 1900s. So he's a school teacher in Leeds. And he went missing um, later 
um, months of the Battle of the Somme. And his wife received an unsolicited letter from a lady in Scarborough called Lily Dawes, whose husband was also in the King's King's Royal Rifle Corps, had also gone missing. And she just seemed to want to vent her spleen about the military authorities hiding information, about how she hoped to never see those four words again, King's Royal Rifle Corps. Um, So as well as her her own sort of anguish and grief, Annie Blackburn, Ernest Blackburn's wife, also had to sort of deal with somebody else offloading onto her. Um, Incidentally, at the same time, Annie Blackburn also gave birth to her second son, somewhat prematurely, um, who fortunately survived, but he... He died tragically young. So, you know, this, this poor lady lost her husband in the First World War. Her second son just after the, the end of the Second World War as well. So tragic, tragic lives. And I think in, in working class communities, I mean, we know a lot about some of the, the, the wealthier families that, that had missing sons from books like the one that you, you describe, uh, memorial mm. books. But when you sort of look at newspaper reports from that period, you see... You know, Mrs. Smith from a, a back street in Sheffield asking about her missing son at Sayre. Um, you know, the, it was just as prevalent there, but we perhaps don't have so many records of it. I think, um, no, not so many records, but you, know, you mentioned Sheffield. And um, when some of the, the wounded from the, the Sheffield City Battalion came back, you know, from after the, the attack on Sayre on the first day of the Somme, that they, they again were bombarded with requests, demands, anguished pleas for information as they themselves were recovering from the horrors of, of the Battle of the Somme, their own wounds, both physical and psychological. So, yeah, it, it wasn't just the case if you were sort of working class or from an ordinary sort of family in Sheffield, there was no access to information. You still had your channels of inquiry to go down. It was, you just perhaps had less of a range and the uh, of people to contact and the 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 search would would perhaps go on for a a shorter amount of time before you ran ran into a a dead end and i think sometimes you see their grief as well the working class grief expressed not in memorial volumes but on on headstones in in civil cemeteries across britain where it's a family grave and it remembers a son killed at Lewes or on the somme and when you look them up they're almost always missing soldiers that was their place where they chose to commemorate them that's right i mean there's just uh, along the along the way for me here uh, uh, there's a cemetery in the town i live in, in peniston and that has uh, quite a few of those examples where names were added to family gravestones but the 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 men you know have looked up uh, on you know memorials to the missing over in the, the western front battlefields um and, and you know you mentioned memorialization this again took took many many layers there's i mean i felt very privileged that um, some of the main characters featured in the book um we know about them because families kept letters um reports from the red cross and order of saint john um as, as a sort of memorial archive within the family and they've sat within the family being lovingly passed down through to the generations through a hundred years. And for the first time, many of these stories have seen the light of day. And it's been a real honor and quite humbling to, to share with the families, you know, the, their experience and, you know, the, the, the thanks from them to say that, you know, it's so nice that uh, 
you know, great uncle Alan's, you know, sacrifice his life is going to be permanently commemorated. So there's that layer of commemoration. There's obviously the, the war memorials established in most towns, villages, cities up and down the country. I mean, for, for most of these, these men, you can find them commemorated eight to nine different places. Uh, for example, Ernest Blackburn, the lead school teacher, he'd grown up in Dewsbury, so his name's on the wonderful memorial in Crowness Park in Dewsbury. His name is on the memorial in Armley Park in Leeds. He's obviously on the Teakville um, Memorial to the Missing. Um, a, a, a lovely story was that his son, Stanley, the one who, who survived and eventually became an academic at the University of Leeds and, and donated his papers to that university, um, the, the Leeds Education Committee commissioned a memorial plaque um, for the men who'd been, you know, the lead school teachers who'd fallen in the war. And when the committee moved buildings in the um, 1980s, this plaque was lost and he tracked it down and found it in a basement of the new building. Oh, wow. One of the final acts of his life was to have it reinstalled in a new building. So, you know, his father is commemorated in the place he grew up, the place they lived, you know, Armley place where he worked or his headquarters were those so many places but there isn't an actual defined place where that family can go and pay their respects um, i think it was all part of that grief process wasn't it i mean it, i think mm. it shows it demonstrates really clearly the power and the strength and the depth of the of the grief that was there at the time of the first world war it, 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 it's, it's a depth and, and a breadth because it continues to this day. For example, another um, character in the book, Rifleman Alan Sterling, again of the King's Royal Rifle Corps, he was from Wolverhampton. And um, on the centenary anniversary in 2014, um, along a particular street, silhouettes were made of every mad man in, from that street who had gone to war and never come home. And his relative was able to stand next to that memorial of him with his name, with his army number, his date of death, sort of commemorating that way. But, you know, obviously she's gone to the battlefields where, where he fell and tried to get as close as, as she could to his, his place of death. But as it was in the sort of retreat in the face of Operation Michael, she, it, it could be over yeah, a space of a, a number of miles. So, yeah, th th that sense of loss, that lack of closure still feeds through to many of these families today. And I think it was that lack of closure that, you know, even a decade after the war, when mon monuments like the Menin Gate were, were unveiled, mm. people were still hoping, weren't they? Oh, yes. Uh, you know, one of the, not one of the main characters in the book, but um, Angus McNachton, you know, his, his wife sort of a decade afterwards was still conducting searches and as you said hoping against hope that there might be some some news of her husband and then conversely th three of the characters in the book after a hundred years closure was finally made for the families one particularly young man um, lieutenant gilbert donnelly first royal monster fusiliers um, he again went missing it was reported missing during operation michael and for a century the family never knew what had happened to him and memories grew dim. And then with the sort of advent of the anniversary commemorations, uh, a great nephew of his, Dan Donnelly, decided with other members of the family that it was time to try and find out what had happened. And fortuitously on the, the Great War Forum, another researcher had established the fact that there were only two lieutenants of the Royal Munster Fusiliers 
who could possibly be buried in that particular cemetery at St. Emily and using internet researches, looking at the, the, the unit war diaries, etc. They finally had the, it, it confirmed by the Ministry of Defence that what was previously an unknown lieutenant of the Romans, the Fusiliers, was their great uncle Gilbert. Two years ago, there was a, a very moving sort of rededication ceremony. Similarly with Lieutenant Butt, the process was gone through and they found out that a particular grave of an unknown Lieutenant of the Royal Army Medical Corps in the Hoover Crater Cemetery was Lieutenant Butt and similarly they were able to achieve that closure and that was incredibly powerful for those families to, so on behalf of their ancestors, to have that sense of closure. In fact, Lieutenant Donnelly's great-nephew was handed the Union flag that would have been handed to his grandfather. So his great-grandfather had. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, it just shows that the the story of the Great War, um, that last page of its history, will never be turned, will it? It will not. No, I mean, say, there's there's three families did manage to find, or have managed to find some closure. Who's to say? Because, you know, bodies are being uncovered all the time still with advances in DNA technology, etc. Yeah, it will never be... it will never be closed. Those families who have been, in a way, fortunate enough to, to achieve that closure of having a defined place to visit and commemorate will still carry those memories and, and, and you know, treasure, the, treasure the, the lives that those young men had. And I'm sure that the search will continue for the ones that are yet to be found. And you know, in a way, the establishment of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in, in Westminster Abbey was an attempt at the end of the war to try and provide that place for families because, in, in theory, that young soldier in Westminster Abbey could be Private Charles Atwood of the Canadian Expeditionary Force, a young man who went out from Somerset who was lost the you know the first gas attack at Ypres in 1915, it could be Private Arthur Greensmith, the young Sheffield um, mining engineering student lost on the first day of the Battle of Somme. It could be Rifleman Alan Sterling, it could be Rifleman Ernest Blackburn, or it could be Lieutenant um, Percy Pope. So in a way, families do have a place that t- to, to commemorate, and you know many places locally and on the battlefields, but. The absolute closure will, will is still not there for them. No, and when you write a book like this, you must become very connected to these men and, and their stories. You do. You you end up going to every place that they're associated with. Um, you know, e- each of them. I've, I've been to the towns they grew up in. Uh, obviously, the war memorials. Many of them came from you know religious backgrounds. As many people uh, were in in that era been to the churches they worshipped in, were baptised in, you know, where some, some memorial plaques to them. Um, and, yeah, you, you, you end up sort of trying to live in that time, of that, that milieu, that environment, that their the, the cultural um, expectations and upbringing, the religious element, which is often overlooked as, as a factor in, you know, how people mediated the experience of, of both wars, world wars of the 20th century. And you, you do get drawn in, in, into their into their lives, into their experience. And, and you know, the, I've tried to divide the book into where there's a chapter on describing each each individual's upbringing and background and family background. And these were just ordinary people from different classes of society, making the way 
warehouseman, doctor, printer, a barrister, a school teacher, um, a medical student, all had lives, you know, lives to lead and, and contributions to make to society. And unfortunately, society at the time demanded a different sacrifice, a different contribution for them, the ultimate sacrifice. And it's one that still sort of stings a hundred years later in families. It doesn't go away, as you say. No, no. And I, I think it gives us an insight into the values of a society more than a century ago, which are in many ways very different uh, to our own, just as I suppose society a hundred years before the Great War would have been. But I remember one of the veterans saying to me that duty was important to us. You know, duty was our byword. And uh, it's something that uh, I think many people today struggle to understand. Well, in particular, the aspects of duty to one's country, which, you know, in the current situation with COVID, we're being exhorted to all do our bit. And also the way that message was mediated through the churches. Again, I keep coming back to this, but um, what was being said from the pulpits, what was being said by the bishops and the, the archbishops of Canterbury and York really hit home. Um, to, and it was an important factor in reassuring men that they were doing the right thing for God, King and country. And the, the God bit was extremely important. It wasn't just an extra word put in for the sake of it. Um, so, yeah, there, there was so many push and pull factors on these young men that the pull factor of doing your bit, of being part of what your generation was about, part of doing your, your, your duty to your God, your duty to your King and country. In fact, looking at Lieutenant Donnelly, he was actually from a, a Northern Irish uh, Belfast Catholic family. So he actually put on his application um, to join any unit Irish preferred. He wanted to particularly be in one of the two Irish divisions. And what was sort of really sad was after the war, because of the, you know, the aftermath of the Easter Rising and the, the troubles in Ireland, the sacrifice of the Irish Catholic community was really overlooked and downplayed and it allowed the sacrifice of the Ulster division, um, the Protestant divisions, to be sort of used as a political tool in, in, Irish, in the Irish conflict. And it, it became that one group of men's sacrifice got venerated and, and, and utilised maybe for aims that they hadn't signed up for. Whereas the contribution of another community until the centenary really came around was was pretty much overlooked apart from within the private memories of families and in the memorial columns of, um, of Irish newspapers. Yeah, I think uh, you know, in the, during the centenary, as you say, a new generation of people in, in Ireland, particularly Southern Ireland, are beginning mm. to see that the, this sacrifice was important. It was a defining moment in their country's history. And that these men, rather than be forgotten, should be remembered. It, it sort of seemed to start around the time of the sort of Irish peace process that um, you know, the Irish Peace Park was established. Um, but yeah, I, I visited Dublin in about 2010 um, to run a marathon, incidentally. But the, 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 there was very much no, no sense of war commemoration there but when I went back in 2015 and visited Glasnevin Cemetery it was very apparent that commemoration of the First World War it, it perhaps Ireland had reached a different place in its in its history and its understanding of its own past and it was willing to bring in commemoration memorialization and recognition 
of what ordinary people in in extraordinary situation had to do and had to go through. And the focus was more on the, the stories and the sacrifices and the complexities of the cultural backgrounds of the individuals rather than the broad political narratives of nationalism and unionism and Protestantism and Catholicism. Yeah, but I think that generation in Ireland, they were missing soldiers of a different kind, really, that they, mm. whether they had a grave or not, they were missing from the story, and, and, that's, and that's not the case now. I mean, the stories in your book are very, very strong, and, I, and I've had the privilege of reading it because you very kindly asked me to write a foreword for it. And, and it really, the, the history of the Great War just weaves through it. So it must have been a remarkable book for you to write, really. It was, as I say, it was a, for me, the dividing memory would be the privilege uh, of meeting or corresponding with you know, the, the descendants of, of these men and being able to share not just the, you know, the, the original, you know, the, the primary information from, from 100 years ago, but their thoughts, feelings and reflections on it. As you say, it's, it's a chapter that will never be closed, but I hope what the book does is add another chapter to the ongoing story of what these families have been going through for the past hundred years or more. Well, thank you, John. And your book, Reported Missing in the Great War, comes out in October, I believe? It is, yes, published by Pen and Sword. So I'll put a link uh, on the podcast website to that. I'll also put a link to you on Twitter so people can follow you uh, and get more information on some of the stories and your book coming out. Thanks for this chat. It's been uh, fascinating to talk about this incredible Mm -hmm. subject, really, that, like you say, is, is not it just in the past, it still has its echoes today. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate you having me on and all the kind encouragement you've given me during the project. My pleasure. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. Do take time to subscribe to us via your favourite podcast service. Tell us what you think using the hashtag OldFrontLine. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor, and the podcast has its own Twitter feed now at OldFrontLinePod. And have a look at the podcast websites, oldfrontline.co.uk. Until we meet again, along the Old Front Line.